perhaps some of you are aware that there are a couple of difficulties, ethical challenges going on in some Buddhist groups these days, two major Buddhist organizations. And I've been watching some um, videos and other things of other teachers responding to these difficulties. And I wanted to offer I thought they had some very good points, and so I wanted to kind of amalgamate some of the things I've been hearing, as well as add my own thoughts and try to uh, maybe relate these issues to a larger picture, in fact, a picture that's kind of practice-oriented. So at least that's the plan, and we'll see how it goes. So in one... um, in one response that I saw, a senior teacher offered a very nice image of a, um, a boil, you know, or an infection that, you know, when it gets really big and nasty, you go and you get it lanced, right? And then uh, all the poison essentially comes out of it. And then there's, it's least, it's not very pretty, but at least it's there and you can deal with it in some way, right? And uh, she, this teacher herself, is not a U.S. citizen, and she then made the analogy to what's happening in the United States right now and (laughs) said, well, in general, uh, you can see, and this applies to no no matter where you sit on the political spectrum, that when there are things underneath that have been festering for a while, we know how this is, right? They have a way of coming to the surface, and uh, you know you can't avoid it forever. And so they come, and then again, it may not be comfortable, but then there's at least a chance to to deal with whatever's been going on that you couldn't really do when it was kind of subterranean and we couldn't really see it directly, right? And then that's you know that's how it is in practice. Also, is that um, things come to the surface through mindfulness. Even if you've only been practicing a short time, you may have noticed this. And certainly, if you've been practicing for a longer time, you notice that you know you have this nice intention of sitting and being with your breath, and you think it's going to be a lot of relaxation and stress reduction. And it can be for a while. But then there's a way in which, in the quiet, things in your heart that haven't been fully processed in some way will come to the surface, right? We're sitting there and suddenly a wave of sadness or anger or some memory that we haven't thought of for 35 years uh, shows up and we think, ah, that person, how could they have done that? And then you think, the next thought is, where did this come from? (laughs) You know, I'm just sitting here peacefully. Well, that's right is that you're sitting there and there's some attention being paid. So I don't think all of these processes are, I'm describing are exactly analogous because some of them, the last one, for example, comes about through very wholesome means of applying mindfulness to a situation. So we create a safe and peaceful atmosphere and then the things that haven't been seen will come. In these other cases, we have more an unwholesome atmosphere where there has been repression or denial or, you know, 
too much busyness and not talking about things. And then something eventually explodes. And you see the difference, right? Is that in meditation, we were right there with the tools to kind of address something that comes. Whereas we may not be, we may be blindsided in daily life by these things when we've been rushing along and then they have to come to a head. So, but some way or other, things come to the surface. I think that's the title of this talk, is coming to the surface. So some way or other, things come. And then the question is, how do we meet that? How do we deal with that? Are we in a position to uh, be able to address properly something that has come, whether it's a, a shocking and surprising uh, ethical misconduct by a teacher, or whether it's um, you know, a memory from long ago, or whether it's a diagnosis that we weren't expecting. You know, there are other changes that come about quickly, come to the surface, so to speak, the reality of our body that is not going to go on forever. Mostly it just hangs along, and then sometimes things come to the surface and we are reminded, oh right, this is a vulnerable thing, this is a finite thing that I'm walking around in. So sometimes um, one of our, I'm going to go over a sort of a, the terrain of some of the responses that we do and how we do them and consider in light of practice uh, how skillful these are and how helpful they may, may be or not in some cases. So one thing that we like to do when things come up, come to the surface, is that we want to analyze them or figure them out or explain them or tell a story to make us feel okay about how this could have happened. And so, um, however, there are some teachings around this and it's not necessarily that we need to do a lot of analysis around things that happen. And I'll start kind of at one end of the spectrum, something that the Buddha said. He, um, he talks about a person who has been struck by a poison arrow. And, you know, this is a terrible thing. You've been struck by a poison arrow. There's a certain time urgency about dealing with that. But um, this is what he describes, a situation. And it's pretty long, so you get the sort of ludicrousness of it. It's just as if a man were wounded with an arrow, thickly smeared with poison. His friends and companions, kinsmen and relatives, would provide him with a surgeon. And the man would say, I won't have this arrow removed until I know whether the man who wounded me was a noble warrior, a Brahmin, a merchant, or a worker. He would say, I won't have this arrow removed until I know the given name and clan name of the man who wounded me, until I know whether he was tall, medium, or short, dark, ruddy brown, golden colored, until I know his home village, town, or city, whether the bow with which I was wounded was a longbow or a crossbow, whether the bowstring was fiber, bamboo thread, sinew, hemp, or bark, and until I know whether the shaft was wild or cultivated, whether the feathers were a vulture, a stork, a hawk, a peacock, or another bird, and whether I know whether the shaft which, which I was wounded was bound with sinew of an ox, a water buffalo, a langur, or a monkey. Meanwhile, the man would die, and all those things would still remain unknown to him. 
right? I mean, it's ridiculous in the case of the arrow. So that's, of course, why the Buddha offered that example. But the analogy can be similar of, you know, and so the, you know, the, the follow-on is just take the arrow out. <laughs> you know, you don't need to know all those things. And in the same way, I think we're encouraged not to get too detailed about knowing exactly this and that about, for example, the issues that come up in our practice. Oh, I'm feeling this, this anger again. Um, how exactly did that come about? And I need to trace exactly what that person said and then exactly why that was offensive to me, which probably came from my past related to this or that or that. And we could go for a long way down that trail. And the, the idea is somehow, until I understand all of that, I won't be able to let this anger go. But in the meantime, you're very angry, and you're also doing a lot of thinking and analysis. And it's actually better somehow just to let go of the anger, you know, if you could in this moment. Now, we can back off from that then a little bit and say, well, okay, in some cases it can be useful to know something about what's going on. Um, so that we'll be wiser in the future. Sorry, we may be getting low on the battery, I'm not sure. Although it doesn't say that on here, so we'll see. Um, it can be helpful for some people at some times to have some analysis into the past of you know, what's going on with certain situations. Um, but probably, and I think this example, you know, the quote about the poison arrow can help us be a little bit more discerning about that and decide, okay, in this situation, exactly how much is really needed and how much is just feeding some kind of desire to know more and more, analyze it and dig around in the dirt. Here's another way to think about it, is that sometimes, um, instead of cause, there can be other things that we would want to know. Like, we often want to know the cause of things in the West, it turns out. Um, we have a strong belief in linearity, and that there's a cause, and then there's an effect. And that's broadly what's taught by the Buddha, right? The, the origin of suffering, is, and then there's a, um, you know, there's a reason why we suffer. So, you know, we're, we're told to understand that. However, sometimes cause is defined a little bit narrowly in our mind. You know, we, we come at it from a little bit limited perspective, and it can help to use words more like conditions. What are the conditions for this to be there? Or even the word genesis can be better than cause. Um, for example, suppose that you notice that in meetings, um, when you're interrupted, you know, which, when you start to say something and somebody talks over, is this too distracting? Should I turn it, actually just turn it off to have it going on and off like that? I've heard that before. Okay, let's just try it without. Um, so let's say in a meeting that, in meetings that you find that when you're interrupted, you become very angry and sometimes you just lash out and it's unmindful and you realize later, okay, I should have, I shouldn't have gotten so upset. Uh, you realize this is a problem because it's not helpful in meetings for you to be doing that at work. And so 
the idea that you need to know the cause of this uh, is likely to produce things like, well, I get angry because, you know, Joe interrupts me all the time. You know, that's the cause. <laughs> or if you're a little more uh, psychological in your analysis, you'll say, well, you'll chase down one of these rabbit holes and say, well, I need to understand why it is that I have power issues or why it is that somebody disrespected me. When did that happen in the past that triggered this? But you have to ask, actually, if you knew all of that, would it actually help you not to get angry at that moment? Maybe a little bit. But what you actually need is you need some kind of a practice that is going to help with this problem that you're having. And so what you actually need to know is what's the genesis? What are the conditions where this is triggered? Where does it start? Oh, it starts when I'm interrupted in meetings. So then you can be mindful and be looking for that genesis because then you might catch it, the response, before it happens. If you know that, it is useful. And then you also need to know the conditions. Like maybe it's harder for you um, when it's the late afternoon and that's the low energy point of your day, for example, and then you're much more likely. And then, or maybe it's that you're in a public situation. You notice that, for example, that when your partner interrupts you at home and you're relaxed, it's not that big a deal. But in a meeting where it's public and you're supposed to be on stage and looking good, then when somebody interrupts you, then you really get angry or whatever. I'm just making this up, but it's helpful to know the genesis so you can look for those and the conditions that feed it so you'll know how bad it's going to be. And then it's helpful to have a practice like mindfulness where we're going to be able to handle that. So in the same way, uh, if there's a case of ethical misconduct, and we may be angry about that, we can say, what was the cause of that? I want to find the perpetrator and punish them. Um, that's all that matters. Well, okay, but maybe we also need to look at what was the, what were the conditions that were supporting this? You know, maybe it's relevant to know whether there were certain conditions in the organization that were allowing something like this to happen, and then we might want to check if our organization as conditions like that. This is where things start to get useful, beneficial, practical, not just anger and response, something like that, right? So we're encouraged to do the right kind of analysis, not just any old analysis and not the analysis with the point of, I'm going to figure all this out and then it's going to be done because probably it won't be in that case. Probably will die in the meantime, like the person with the poison arrow. So that's one thing, is to be intelligent about the way that we want to analyze and figure out and explain. And then, um, looking even deeper, there's a way in which this sort of work can open our heart, sometimes in surprising ways, actually. So um, I happened to run across a, a wonderful uh, piece of writing by a teacher recently, who a teacher who has cancer, so a Dharma teacher. And she, um, you know, one of the things that we, as I pointed out earlier, that we tend to deny or ignore or not really pay attention to is the fact that our body is aging and prone to illness and so forth. And then every now and then we get those reminders, right? And usually we're shocked, but are we, should we really be shocked? Um, and so it's a similar situation. Something has come up. Wow, it's a surprise. I could try to figure it all out or I could get angry about it. But there's also, let me read this part of the essay that she wrote um, about her own experience. This is a Dharma teacher. 
Early in the diagnosis, I did what everyone does, which is to wonder and worry about what, I, what did I do wrong to cause cancer. There's an urge to go over every dietary or other habit that may have contributed to creating the conditions for cancer in the hopes of finding the root cause and getting rid of it. Although there may be a variety of contributing factors and some lifestyle improvements are a good idea, I have stopped trying to figure out the cause. For most people, there is no obvious single cause, but rather coming together of a constellation of difficult to identify conditions. Perhaps worrying about all the possible causes is more undermining than just living life fully and healthily with its inherent uncertainty and vulnerability. Over the past months, I have reflected often about our inherent moment-to-moment -moment vulnerability. Deeply feeling our vulnerability can help soften us, turning us into more caring and compassionate beings. Maybe it could be called the humility of vulnerability. We are in an impossible situation together. We want to live and we will die. We want to be happy and we will experience pain, loss, and uncertainty. We are all struggling with this every day. Can't we come together and help each other out? I thought that was nicely written. You know, it applies to so many areas in our life which are uncertain, which are fraught with challenge. And, you know, it's not useless to think about the causes and to make lifestyle changes and to consider the conditions. But what about just opening our heart and saying, everybody has to go through things like this. Um, everybody is vulnerable. Everybody has difficulties in their mind and or body. And can't we just come together and help each other out? It's so simple in the end. So it's worth considering, you know, what is being learned when things come to the surface and, um, and how we might choose to respond such that the boil, the wound from the boil gets cleaned out and healed and not just irritated or reinfected or something or covered over again so that it will yet again rise up. We might find surprisingly that there's love and compassion that are ready to come forth, um, not just for those who have been harmed in certain situations, but even for those who did the harm uh, because they must have been suffering quite a bit to be able to do that. And then there's also the wisdom, you know, the wisdom that this is just how it is in samsara, that is in here in our human existence of comings and goings, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame. These all sound familiar, fame and disrepute. So all the things that are just going to come and go in our lives, can we find some balance with all of that and respond in a way that's useful and that, you know, that we remember the wisdom of change. Things come and go as they do. That's how it is to live here. So there's an interesting thought experiment, at least I think it's interesting, that my, um, my teacher talks about. He says, imagine, imagine that the Buddha shows up here. You weren't, you weren't stuck with me tonight that the Buddha actually comes. And that would be impressive that he, he shows up. And 
what he says here to the group, as we're all waiting for his words of wisdom, he says, I have to confess that what I taught was wrong. I'm sorry, I made a mistake. It's not true. It's all wrong. Um, I'm sorry. And you think, wow, that was an interesting Dharma talk. And then the, the question, though, and the, to imagine is, in that situation, in an amazing situation like that, are there things that you know so deeply from your own experience that even if the Buddha were to say that, you would not change your life because you know how it works. You, know, you would say, nope, I'm pretty sure about this particular one. This one I'm still going to live in this way. And we, most of us can, I think, find in our heart some knowledge that's like that. Um, and, you know, maybe increasingly as we walk the path, there's things that we have just seen so deeply and so clearly in our own experience that uh, we know them. I mean, we really know them. The Buddha talked about becoming independent in the Dharma, you know, that that's what our practice moves toward. We need teachers, we need sangha, we need a path, we need teachings uh, as we walk the path. But the point of all of those is not, is it really that to instill the Dharma uh, deep in our heart, such that we really know it, such that we become the path that we're walking, we become expressions of the Dharma ourselves, and then we really do know things very deeply. And we have become independent of these outside needs in our practice. There may not be, you know, the exact crowning moment when, you know, somebody hands you a diploma and says, okay, you're now independent in the Dharma, because if it comes from someone else, that's not the case, right? So we have to learn this for ourselves. And if we're properly humble, the humility of vulnerability, as the teacher mentioned, uh, we would be very careful about declaring <laughs> too soon uh, what we know. But there can be a growing sense, right? A growing sense of that clarity. And then, even if there are surprises in our Dharma world, um, maybe we're a little less shaken by them because we know things for ourselves. We can be a little clearer even within our Dharma groups. So I think this is always what the practice comes down to, is how we meet what's coming to the surface. And do we meet it with all the wisdom and mindfulness and kindness and care that we can muster at that moment, and with the understanding that sometimes we don't, and sometimes other people don't. And that's all part of the practice also. It's a rich topic. I don't know if I've completely done it justice, but I kind of feel like um, like this could be a, a good wind down point. And 
I would just ask for your wisdom and your comments or thoughts and feelings about anything along these lines, things that are coming to the surface and our response to them. What's on your mind? Yeah, Richard. Uh, so several great things uh, came up as you were talking. Um, so two things really quickly. Um, one is on the subject of the boil. Um, my sister, uh, I've been wanting to have a conversation with her for several years because she was the executor of our parents' estate. Oh. And I was just not happy with the way she was handling it, especially mm -hmm. the way she treated our brother. And I just couldn't figure out how to have a conversation with her without alienating her, which I had done once before. So I called her today and, you know, ascertained that she was in a good mood. <laughs> oh, a little more wisdom. And yeah. I said, um, I thought, I thought the best way to deal with this is to, to be upfront with the fact that I have something to tell her. And my concern is that when she hears it, uh, my concern is that she's gonna be angry with me or, um, uh, or there's gonna be you know, some kind of alienation and I don't really want that. So having said that, I think that alone set up a dynamic so that I actually said really what was on my mind. I don't think you handled the, the, uh, the state distribution. Uh, and I just, you know, I, I have issues with that. Uh, and she started to like object to particular points. And, you know, I just kept about why she did what she did. And I just said, it's not what you did it's the fact that you didn't communicate anything about this and left us in the dark. And the conversation went really well. And, you know, we we're sort of laughing and joking by the end. Maybe there's some aftermath for her. But I spoke what was true, but I did it in a way that felt really, for me, that felt caring, mm. compassionate, when it would have really been easy to kind of dump on her. Uh, and the other thing is the, um, uh, my favorite mindfulness practice is um, when any strong emotion comes up, because uh, I'm a head type, so I'm the one that wants to go and figure out the cause of it and all this sort of stuff that's in the past. Now what I do, which is so helpful, is that when a strong emotion comes up, uh, I always have a physical reaction. I stop the story, and anybody that knows the somatic experiencing therapy will recognize this. I just let go of the story and say, okay, what's going on in my body? Yeah. And just breathe. That is so powerful. And what you get is the story doesn't matter. What happened doesn't matter. It's the something's locked in the body. It's just, you know, being rubbed up against and causing a reaction. And I just notice it. Where is it in the body? Breathe through it. And amazingly, within minutes, it just dissipates. Mm -hmm. And if I try to reenact or recreate that anger, I just, I just can't find it. <laughs> so that's that's a powerful technique. Thank yeah. You. Thank you for sharing that. 
I probably could have unpacked that a bit. That's what I think the teacher means when she says deeply feeling our vulnerability. It's the same thing. Deeply feeling anything in the body can really, uh, it brings a whole different dimension into it because the body's in the present moment. And so it helps untangle the past in a certain way. And that's wonderful with your sister, by the way. Um, yeah, it's probably has even far more far-reaching benefits than you know yet to have you know, made up in some way or at least brought something out, a boil, so to speak. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, Margaret. Thank you for your insightful words. Um, I struggle with um, how to handle some of these uh, deep and uncomfortable feelings that come up from time to time. And it's been my sense with Buddhism that um, it's desirable to be present with those feelings and to sit with them. And um, at the same time, I'm hearing that um, we can sort of acknowledge them and move on from them. And so I guess I, it's, it's not something that I wish to indulge in with, with powerful feelings, but I guess part of me feels like I need to give them their space in their life in order for me to not dwell in those feelings. And I, I just wonder what your, your sense of that is. Is it, is it something that you just want to say, you know, this, this will change, I have a choice here, I don't have to dwell in this place? Or do you feel that it's recommended to Sit and get in touch with somatic feelings, as Richard was describing. I'm kind of confused about that. Yeah, yeah, it's um, that's because there, are, fortunately for us, um, multiple approaches, and so um, then there becomes some discernment about which approach you take at a certain time. Sometimes it is recommended to just sit with something. Some teachers even call it sitting in the fire, you know, and just let it burn itself out if you're mindful the whole time. Um, and then also, though, there can be times when it's, I'm just basically echoing what you said, there are times when something comes and it's like, okay, this is the 117th time I've seen this today. Um, I don't have time for this and it's not important and actually just uh, letting it go diminishes its power immediately. And so then I hear what you're hearing and what you're asking is, um, how do you know which one? And is that along the lines of what you're asking? Because either of those is totally valid approach. Yeah, and I suppose if, if there's something that is recurring, then maybe there's something more behind it. Ah, yeah. Certainly if it's recurring, then there becomes a question of why is this coming back so much? But we don't want to do too much analysis into that. Um, instead, I think in those cases, what's been helpful for me is to turn around and look at the, um, the attitude of the mind that's observing what's coming up. Um, cause there is, there's the object, there's the thing that's coming and there's also how, 
you know, how it's being met, the conditions of the mind that are meeting it. And so um, there are skillful and unskillful ways of doing that. And if the way that we're meeting something is unskillful, it will reinforce it in certain ways and encourage it to keep coming back or encourage it to dig, you know, re-entrench itself somehow. And so, you know, for example, there are, um, if we're just, quote unquote, just sitting with something, waiting for it to burn itself out, we might turn around and check our attitude. Are we subtly encouraging it? Do we actually kind of like it? (laughs) Do we actually kind of want it? Do we feel like it's a part of us and it's comfortable to be sad all the time? Because, you know, I'm just a sad person. And so when the sadness comes, yeah, I'm feeling it, but subtly I'm saying, yeah, that's that sadness. That's me. I know that's me. Um, I'm hamming it up, but there, there can be those forces in the mind. And so then that subtly keeps it in place. Or if something comes and we let it go, but it keeps coming and we keep letting it go, maybe we have, we can turn around and say, okay, in what way am I letting this go? And it might be that what we're actually doing is saying no, no. And every time we say no, that's just aversion. Aversion feeds things. You can't get rid of something through aversion. And so, of course, it keeps coming back. So there are ways in which we might check if we're holding on or pushing away in our way of meeting something, because both of those will, will keep it going. Whereas if it's just met with equanimity or with caring, mindfulness, um, anything that's not a, a hook attitude, it will burn itself out pretty fast, as Richard described. And sometimes we're just, we just don't know how we're meeting it. And you have to turn around and look at that. So that might be helpful. Yeah. Carlotta, yeah. yeah. So <clears throat> let me see if I understand it correctly. So there's one way, right, of sitting with the feeling and the somatic response, as, as he was saying, right? For me, what happens sometimes, I, I kind of, I, 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 I think I sometimes I call it escaping. And, but escaping is really also another practice that I have heard, and that is to observe what's going on. Mm-hmm. So, so especially there are, uh, there are um, emotional responses or, or states of mind that are pretty scary, like fear. Yeah. Fear. And, and, and sometimes it's this fear with no reason. It's just fear, suddenly. Yeah. And, um, and truly getting back and, and just kind of observing that there is a fear, it, 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 I can handle it. Mm-hmm. You know? But at the same time, I'm not, I don't know if I'm really handling it correctly because it's escaping. Because you're creating a, dis, a gap. Right. Yeah. I'm creating a gap and saying, oh, there's fear. I mean, I don't know why, and I don't analyze it why. It's just because I, don't know. I know that I don't know. It's yeah, not yeah. a book. And it's suddenly that's holding it down a lot. I mean, because like I can I can get to terms with that, but I'm not so sure if it's an escaping attitude. Yeah. Or is it really a Yeah. Um it it's very skillful, uh, when something is a strong emotion to create that gap through mindfulness. It's not it's not an escape necessarily. Um if it helps you to be present with the fear, that's great. You know, 
not to be sucked into something's orbit again and again uh, is skillful. Um, because if you're truly just going underwater, basically, then you're, you're not you're not present enough to be able to do the process that we described earlier where it burns itself out. So one analogy I like to give um, is that you have a certain level of attention and then you have experiences that are coming at also at a certain level of intensity. And if their intensity is higher than the intensity of your attention, you get overwhelmed and it's actually not useful. You're just getting pushed around by those experiences. Whereas if your mindfulness is strong enough and then the experiences are down here, then you're having a good effect, you know, because the, the ones that are wholesome are getting enhanced by mindfulness and the ones that are unwholesome are getting, or getting you know, released. But you need to be aware of where your level of mindfulness is. And if something is coming that's getting really close to your level, if you just pull back, you know, from it, then you're not escaping. You're allowing yourself to be aware of it. And then later, you know, mindfulness develops over time. As your mindfulness gets stronger, you may be able to be with the whole feeling of the fear. It just it depends over time. So it seems to me that what you're doing is skillful. Um, yeah. Thank Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.